0: Hey, UBP listeners, this is Alexis. I am one of the co-hosts of the Unconscious Bias Project podcast, and I'm one of the co-executive directors. And I am so excited to introduce today a rebroadcast of another podcast episode that featured Lynette, my co-executive director, and Lucrecia, one of our advisors on our board of advisors, as guests on the podcast Vocal Fries with Carrie and Megan. First of all, I love this podcast because I am also a linguistics nerd. I used to teach Latin to middle schoolers, and so I'm always excited to find new podcasts that are based around linguistics, especially when it's at the intersection of diversity, equity and inclusion. So, Lucrecia and Lynette were guests on Vocal Fries and they talked about gender, they talked about some of what the core of unconscious bias project is and what we do and how and why we do it. There was this great question about like, what's your filter? And they talked about differing perspectives on the world. And they talked about empathy and of course, our 0% guilt, 100% empowerment philosophy here at the Unconscious Bias Project. So have a listen, I think you're gonna love it.
1: When I listen back to myself in the podcast, I'm like, oh, do I sound like that? But I'm like, this is what people sound like. This is how people talk.
2: Hi, welcome to the Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Megan Figueroa. And I'm Carrie Gillen. How you doing, Carrie? I'm um, feeling pretty good. Yeah. yeah. How about you? Good.
1: Yeah. Um, I went a couple of weeks there without any air conditioning, and now I have air I conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you
2: could do it. I mean, I know it's slightly cooler in Tucson.
1: But not enough. Cooler. No, not enough cooler. <laughs> it was miserable. My poor dog found like all of the different ways to lay on the tile to cool himself before mm-hmm. going. <laughs> it's like right there with him laying on the ground. <laughs> like this has got to be <laughs> the best way. <laughs> but now, now we have air conditioning. Yay! It's funny because um, darn it, I don't remember who it was on Twitter, but they said that they couldn't believe last week or two weeks ago when we were talking about how hot it gets here, how they just couldn't fathom it. And yes, it's, it's kind of a, until you experience it yourself, you quote, you don't quite understand.
2: (laughs) You don't. I remember the very first day I arrived here uh, in August and I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And I had to go, I had to take the bus and go to um, social security building so that I could get a social security number. Like I had to Um. like start from scratch. Right. And I was like dying Dying!
1: (laughs) Anyway, I feel like right now, during these times, we either only have weather or COVID to talk about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and speaking of COVID... Yes! (laughs) Oh, segue! (laughs) Really, really nice segue. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The Académie Française, remember... Well, so in our bonus episode, we actually mentioned that there is an a French academy that monitors the French language. The Académie Française... Has deemed COVID to be, I believe, masculine. And this is grammatical gender. Grammatical gender, yes, obviously. Yes, yes. <laughs> it can't possibly I mean, be the other one. I mean, <laughs> it can't be biological or whatever. Anyway, our former guest, two time guest, Andrew McKenzie, actually points out that um, he had noted this before the Academy has said anything odd linguistic quirk. In France, it's le COVID-19. And then in Quebec, it's la COVID-19. It's interesting because he points out that it's le coronavirus. <laughs> Sorry for my accent there. Because it's le virus. Le virus? I don't know. Um, but COVID, it, because it's an English acronym, it's almost always le in, in France. La is the masculine pronoun? Uh, determiner, yes. The L-E. Yeah, le is masculine, la is the feminine. So, uh, yeah, so it's le COVID because almost all ac- English acronyms are treated as masculine in French, France-French. But in Quebec, they have a tendency to unpack the acronyms figure out what the French equivalent would be for the for the words in the acronym, and then assign the correct gender for it. So in COVID, the D stands for disease, and that's la maladie in French. Le COVID in France and la COVID in Quebec. That is really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun.
1: So, is it all acronyms that are borrowed, or just English ones in France that they give the? I I don't know. I just
2: said only English, but I don't actually know if that's the case. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Oh, so actually, I got this wrong. So actually, the Académie française is uh, saying no. It should be feminine. It should be la. What? Because of the la maladie. Like they do, they're saying in Quebec. So they're saying the Quebecois are
1: correct. It's <laughs> just kind of fun. <laughs> oh, even though, screw
2: academies of languages
1: <laughs> telling right. everyone how to speak.
2: <laughs> right. But it's kind of interesting that they're choosing yeah. uh, a regional dialect that they don't uh, often agree with. Yeah. So, yeah. That's kind of fun. Huh. Now that's shocking to me. Me too. That's why I got it backwards in my head because I was like, there's no way they would agree with right. Quebec. <laughs>
1: Or is it one way to say "screw you, English"? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I have no idea what it is in Spanish. Let us
2: know. Let us know what it is in other languages. Um, yeah, I would love to. I would love to hear any any language that makes some any kind of grammatical gender distinction, or anything like. What if you you have an animacy distinction like Algonquian oh. languages? Yeah. Is a virus animate or inanimate?
1: my heart tells me it's animate <laughs> but my heart is not that language <laughs>
2: <laughs> today's episode we uh talk with two women who work either for or with the unconscious bias project and we talk about unconscious bias and all kinds of things it's really uh interesting conversation so enjoy Voting isn't just going to the polls on Election Day anymore. Options like early voting, mail-in voting, and ballot drop boxes are available to more voters and are growing in popularity. How to Vote, a tool created by Democracy Works, breaks down the options your state offers for casting a ballot, empowering you to decide when and where to vote. Democracy Works best when we all vote, but misinformation and confusion about election procedures have resulted in low voter turnout. How to Vote, a tool created by Democracy Works, takes the guesswork out of the voting process. Democracy Works is committed to helping you vote no matter what. Their tool, How to Vote, does just that. Decide when and where you'll vote this year at howto.vote. So today we have with
1: us... Dr. Lynette Mera, the executive director and co-founder of the Unconscious Bias Project. She is a changemaker, scientist, and artist from Colombia who develops and implements diversity, equity, and inclusion-focused programs by assessing community needs, leveraging existing resources, and cultivating collaborations within and between organizations. While completing her PhD at UC San Francisco, she co-developed and ran the graduate division's first annual interactive diversity workshop for PhD students and faculty as part of the Minority Graduate Students Organization. We also have with us Lucretia Iruela. Lucretia is the founder of Meliora, a coaching firm for organizations and individuals. She is a senior human resources consultant and a leadership coach in multiple countries. She provides support to executives, leaders, business owners, and entities in navigating opportunities with other professional roles. She is also a facilitator and advisor for the Unconscious Bias Project. The Unconscious Bias Project is developing creative community-based bias reduction online programs grounded in proven methods to reduce unintentional bias, which is to be launched in May and June. So welcome. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us.
3: I'm so so excited to be on here. I love your podcast. It's hilarious. (laughs) No, seriously, you have such great... people invited and I feel I don't know I just feel like oh my gosh I don't know (laughs) like a little bit starstruck like whoa wow well
1: now you're part of the great people that we invite onto this show
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you
1: (laughs) and actually um UBP ran two awesome workshops with my vocal fry clips Mm -hmm. at at the Mm -hmm. California Welfare Directors Association last year yeah which is really cool. will you just say a little bit about that? what is what was the the purpose of it?
3: Yeah, so uh, the purpose of the of the clips of why we, we included the yeah. clips so let me t- uh, give you a, like a a short thing about the California Welfare directors Association. so this is a a nonprofit that um, helps and supports um California welfare directors, meaning everybody that runs things from like uh you know. Uh, child uh, services, family services, food, uh, you know, welfare, like all of those things, you know, these are people that are running really big programs like all over California. So we're talking about, you know, millions of Californians um, that we're supporting. And they, they have an annual meeting um, where they try to, you know, teach these directors like the latest and greatest, you know, get them together, do some team building, things like that. And, um, and we were so happy to be invited to um, run a series. So we ran a series for them. We had a, a huge, you know, 100 plus people panel discussion. Uh, we ran a couple regular workshops. We ran a fun shop. And um, we realized that um, when we were delivering um, our bias reduction tools and, you know, content about bias, we, we were thinking really hard about how their employees are interacting With other people, and if you think about it, what's the first thing you're going to do if you need help? You're going to call somebody, right? Um, You know, it's usually a phone call, or you have an in-person interview, and like that first phone call can really make or break decisions about your welfare. So, um, when I learned and when I learned about your podcast, and I started listening to it and thinking about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so important. We we haven't really covered like linguistic discrimination, like, you know, that, um, you know, unconscious bias, implicit bias, people often talk about it as like an in-person thing. You know, you hear about, um, you know, cops and their like split second decision um, and how they interact with somebody that they suspect might have a gun (laughs) that goes really wrong, but it can also go really wrong in like a a straight up conversation. Um, And so, uh, you know, I I had a chance to, to talk to Carrie a little bit about, about, um, you know, what are, you know, there's so many aspects of like, uh, linguistics and linguistic discrimination. And I was like, well, you know, here's a really easy example is, um, how the person, you know, say I'm a, I'm a social services person. I'm fielding a call from somebody that's seeking my services. And, um, you know, this person sounds, you know, quote unquote young, right. Has a vocal fry, has like the up tilt at the end of sentences, and like you know, I'm you know this person's not you know very experienced. You know, I don't I don't know. You know, maybe they they don't really know how to look for services or something. You know, you can make like that split like, second decision even if you have a script going. And so we wanted um, we presented um, the vocal fry in the context of okay, you know, listen to this clip, think about okay, who is this person? You know, are they younger? Are they older? Are they educated? Are they uneducated? have yeah, they finished college. Um, are they? Would you think they're competent or not. And then um and then we we went to the next slide and then it was a it was a picture of Megan. And it's like, look at this. <laughs> look at this a PhD, she runs a, a a podcast, she's very accomplished. And you know, just to sort of like, you know, juxtapose those two, um, those two, you know, your preconceived notion and then what you actually see. And those sort of like active learning examples is what we love to do in our workshops to, you know, confront people with your own bias. Lots of people are like, yes, bias is bad. Bias is terrible. We don't want to be, you know, discriminatory. We don't want to be racist, sexist or whatever is right. Um, But as soon as you catch yourself doing it, then you're like, Oh crap. Like (laughs) I'm in this too. And you know, so that, that's, that's what we, we, we used your, your amazing clip for that is to, to, to have people sort of catch themselves. And it was really fun. I, um, I beta tested the uh, the slides with my team and they were they were like, oh whoa, yeah, I definitely I, I realized I had that preconceived notion. You know, and we're we're the ones that are teaching this stuff. We we still have those biases too. We we can make those split second decisions, but it's catching that moment of like, oh, I just categorize this person without knowing, you know, a single thing about them that is so important.
1: There are some biases that are harder to catch, right? Will you tell us a little bit about what unconscious bias is?
3: So if we take a step back, what is bias? So bias is prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person or group compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. And unconscious bias is when you're having these uh, these biases, these unfair judgments of other people or other groups um, without really realizing you're doing it. Um, So, you know, a really easy example is you know say you see me leading a workshop and i'm like okay everybody you know put your pencils down or whatever and you're like oh gosh she's so bossy always telling you what to do really wouldn't think that if it was a guy you're like oh yes he's such a good leader he's he's directing us properly right that's a really simple one right and um and it's very easy to have because there's stereotypes all around us that are really um feeding into and like building our unconscious biases against different groups. It can come from TV, movies, uh, podcasts, (laughs) radio, uh, books, uh, anything on the internet, um, your friends, your family, um, even strangers, like how you see uh, other people behaving with other people. You know, that all reinforces the, you know, really terrible stereotypes that are out there um, for all sorts of people. And you can be biased against your own group. Um, so I can be biased against uh, Latina women. Like that. that is, that's, that is the thing that, that happens. And, and Black people can be biased against Black people. I mean, it just, it's the way it is. It's unfortunate. Um, but the more we're able to recognize and catch it, the more we can actually do something about it.
2: How do we measure it if we can?
3: That's a really good question. I'll take a step back. So unconscious bias and the way, um, the way we measured it um, really started with this implicit association test. Or it didn't start with implicit association test, but it sort of blew up once the implicit association test came around. The implicit association test uh, was developed by uh, scientists Greenwald, McGee, and Schwartz back in 1998. And they've, there's all sorts of really great articles and reviews about it. And I really encourage people to seek that out. And um, what they wanted to do was to try to measure, like, how, how can you know that you're, you're having this unconscious bias decision if people consciously don't want to be biased? And so what they try to do is to measure like split second associations people had with a different group. For example, um, are you associating um, men with science and women with liberal arts, for example, and um, you do this really quick test. And they're really fun, actually, online tests that you can take. Um, if you could just go to, um, you could just Google IAT or implicit association test. There's lots of these different tests you can take online. And they're pretty eye-opening. Yes, they're really eye-opening. Uh, however, um, and yeah, so usually you'll, you'll be able to see some sort of bias, <laughs> regardless of who you are. Um, there's not that many people that don't have some sort of bias. Um, the controversy in the field now is that it's not as be all end all type of a test. So you can't just be like, okay, I scored a 10, for example, I mean, that's not an actual measure on it, but I scored a 10 out of 10. I'm like super biased. So if I take some bias reductions, you know, workshops or whatever, and then I come back and if it's a five out of 10, well, then I'm so much better. Um, so it's, it, there's actually a lot of um, noise in the test. It's not absolutely perfect but, um you know the the original authors still think it's a it's a good way to to look at whether or not you have a tendency, so they're not like, you know, just take the number and that's your number. um it's more like and you know it's not like taking up you know temperature or something. it's more like you know, are you trending towards one direction or the other so there's neuroscientists that have that have also tried to look at um you know this unconscious bias or, you know, split second bias by looking at um, in-group and out-group people. So in-group, so for example, Lucrecia and I, um, you know, and Megan would belong to the in-group of like Latina women. Um, That would be our in-group. And then um, if, for example, there was a white guy, he would be in my out-group. So they're not in my in-group. And so they're trying to measure like people's empathies. Like within their in-group or towards people in an out-group, by Dr. David Eagleman, and there's this really fun uh, PBS video series on this. That's that's really interesting uh, to to look at. And they found that um, there's the parts of the brain that you associate with empathy um, light up for people that are in your in-group, but they don't for people that are in your out-group. So there, you know, there's there's there are different ways to look at it. Nothing is absolutely perfect. Um, it's actually a really interesting field. There's uh, people um, looking at um, unconscious bias. Um, so directly, so if you think about Black Lives Matter and um, the really you know tragedy of um, so many um, young black men uh, dying because of of this sort of ingrained bias. Um, there's been a few studies out there where they use, like, video games, for example, or, like, you know, in-person, you know, blank shots where you have to, like, shoot, you know, with high accuracy and speed, you know, whoever is, you know, popping out on your screen with a gun. And, you know, you can show the bias there, right? I think this is this is, this is pretty much everywhere in the news right now. Um, but, yeah, there there is some controversy in the field of, like, well, is it really unconscious bias or is it just like overt bias, but we're just calling it unconscious to make people feel better?
4: I was uh, working with a group um, and there is called Inclusive Inc and they do kind of like a 360 about culture and bias in the workplace. So they really give you examples of your own behavior when you are not treating people the same in the same circumstances. And it's a little bit tricky because you can really see real examples of yourself, but it's out there and it's a tool that, you know, some companies are utilizing. Um, I, every time that I listen to Lynette, I feel that is, you know, the best of the best in terms of knowledge and expertise in this field. They like the topic. They really know the topic. Um, the way that I utilize the really high-level definition and high-level description, when I coach teams or individuals, and I coach a lot uh, in large corporations in the Bay Area, so you can imagine, you can name it, uh, it's very confidential, but if you think big, you will get it. It's a filter that we have before each interaction or any interaction. Sometimes for me, it's very delicate to use prejudicious or prejudgment or even association, right? Because immediately our brain is like, no, that's not me. So when I use filter, it's like, what is your filter right now before you made that comment? Because they made the comments to me and I need to deconstruct that comment. What is the comment coming from? Uh, Have you noticed your filter? Um, People are way more open to observe or to be more aware of themselves and their their circumstances are, as Lynette said, what is this coming from? It's coming from um, your family, your culture, your, your literature, your friends. What is this coming from? So I like to use it that way.
2: Can you give me an example of um, a comment that has been given to you that where you needed to have this conversation of what's your filter?
4: A lot of times the managers, when they're really white collar, they say sometimes to the blue collar, and they're usually foreigners, they don't work hard, they don't get it, they don't understand. And you need to change the perspective. What is working hard for you? what is the things that they, you feel them they don't get it are you really talking to them are you really listening to them They're like no I don't listen to them I just tell them what to do and why why you are not listening to them or talking to them so they little by little they realize i am not the same with them i am different
3: yeah yeah it's it's a lot and I, I have to say um i have enjoyed um working with Lucrecia because she's she thinks so deeply about these things and, and our work at Unconscious Bias Project and the work that Lucrecia does as an executive coach is it's all really about empathy, right? Seeing it seeing things from the other person's perspective and how can you talk to them. Right? You know, if you tell somebody outright, hey you're sexist, you're racist, they're not gonna listen. You know, it's, they immediately shut down. This has been proven. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I'm a scientist, so I totally geek out on, 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 on papers and data, but there's, the, people have studied this a lot, um, especially in, uh, in politics, like for canvassing. Um, there's some really great um, resources out there. If, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're the kind of person that wants to convince somebody that what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're posting is wrong. You don't start with the confrontation. You have to start with like the empathy. And there's, um, if you search like canvassing uh, tools, I think there is a whole, a whole set, a whole series on YouTube um, about uh, like when we were trying to get gay marriage approved. Um, you know, how do you talk to to voters that that don't think that gay marriage is right? Like, how do you how do you talk to them? And it's really it's really building that empathy. Like, you don't just say, "Hi, I'm gay," and You know, please, please vote for gay marriage. You ask them, okay, you know, what, what are your, what is your stance? What are you thinking? And then, you know, if they're obviously against gay marriage, then you, you ask them like, oh, have you, you know, ever had this experience of being othered? Right. You just start from that basic connection, and once you, you know, you can understand like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a situation about being othered. It's a situation about being bullied, being unjustly, you know, accused or unfairly treated. Um, You know, whether you call it a filter, or, you know, a preconceived notion an unconscious bias, or, I mean, you know, the reality, it's like, it's systemic, it's institutional, it's ingrained in our culture. It's ingrained in like, history in so many countries, right? So um, you start from there of like, you know, shared empathy of like, oh, yeah, this is unfair. Um, Then people are more likely to come around.
2: I have read some of that stuff and it is really interesting to see the, ta- the tactics that actually do work. Cause it's true. Like our, I think for many of us, our first reaction is, Oh my God, that's so sexist. Oh my God, that's so racist. But people's defenses definitely go up. Um, mine included, like, it's just kind of a natural thing to want to defend yourself. So it's, it is important for us to be more strategic in this podcast. We definitely are not strategic because we're just <laughs> yelling at people all the time. <laughs> So, first, Lynette, why did you want to start this? and then Lucretia maybe can say why she wanted to work with you.
3: So, I'm from Colombia, and I grew up in five different countries. I grew up in Nigeria, France, Venezuela, uh, the states, and um in Colombia, of course and um I, as a little kid, I had no idea I didn't really think that people were different from me i didn't i didn't th- I didn't realize that. And, it, and um, even though in Colombia, like racism is so strong, and I'm actually uh, the lightest person in my family, like you see my extended family, and there are all the colors. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the palest ones. So I now understand right after being in the US for a while that I'm what people consider white passing. But that didn't stop me from getting bullied or othered. And that Happened to me in middle school, where I got bullied, and I was othered in Colombia. Actually, because I spoke English well, without a Colombian accent, um, I was othered for you know liking school. Um you know, when I sayd
0: united <laughs> <yeah.
3: laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, power to the nerd, uh <laughs> yes.
2: but when I landed
3: in the u s um uh, you know this is still at a time, i mean it, it's still kind of like this, but it, it was at a time where this idea of like Colombia as like the center for drugs like that that was all anybody knew about Colombians, the Center for drugs. Um, You know, I as this is, I I arrived in the States in high school, and we we were in Texas. So like, whoa, one of the first things I remember, ever, when I told somebody I was from Columbia, and I had I had an American accented English, because I'd just been in an American school. they were like, Oh, does your dad deal cocaine? Can I get some? And that was a joke to them. And I was furious because I had seen in Colombia like the kind of violence. Um, I knew like, I already knew that like, you know, the drug trade was really being fueled by consumers in the States. You know, I just, it was, it was terrible. And so when I went to college, I tried to, you know, Hey, you know, let's get to know each other as part of like international student associations. You know, I realized like what we needed is a way to to talk to each other and and find like commonalities and share something and and actually um so so Texas right so so if we remember back when I was in college which was a while ago um this was this was not um too too far after 911 uh, and uh and Texas uh in particular there was a lot of um anti-muslim anti-Brown sentiment at the time. Um, and in when I was in college, this really, um, really stood out when um, there were students that were um, driving up behind people at night. So people with uh, with turbans um, and hitting them with baseball bats in the head and driving off. So it was like, it was random, not random, but like hate crimes, really acts of violence. What we know, we, we what we called now hate crimes. Back then it was like, oh, things are happening. You should just walk in groups so you're not, you know, in danger. Like that was the university's response. And, um, and, and it was just, it was such a bizarre time. And uh, my friend uh, Ryan and I came at it from, we loved languages. I really love languages. But we wanted, to, we wanted to do something where people could connect with each other and not do it in this sort of really, you know, stiff, this is a classroom learning environment or, you know, you know, broad, Hey, this is international culture day. Come eat foods. And, you know, which is still nice. And it is, it has a very important place, but we're like, why don't we, why don't we, who know different languages, teach other people languages, but in a way that they can actually talk them. And, um, and it, it was just like, I mean, I could talk about this forever, but cause I really like languages. It really became a force Like we started with 100 people with students and, and teachers and teachers were just doing this for free. And we just had like conversation classes, essentially, at, at any level, we just wanted people to be able to talk to each other and connect and learn like colloquialisms and, you know, like funny jokes and things that are that are really common um, for your culture or your, you know, a specific language. And um, and lo and behold, like our Farsi classes were the most popular. And when we expanded um, the next year, we like tripled like who we had and all the Farsi classes were packed. Like there's a power in connecting people and including people um, and in trying to, you know, fight against the tide of like, you are different from me. Like, yes, we are different, but we share so much. Like we can have so much in common. And, uh, and I kept on trying to do that in my Ph.D., you know, you mentioned the Minority Graduate Student Organization, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but whose effects still last. Yeah, the diversity workshop that we started, you know, again, students developed it, right? It wasn't something that existed. And it was really one of the first in the nation for graduate schools, which is Fascinating how
2: yeah, terrible yeah.
3: academia is. Um,
2: yeah. Oh yeah, about- we could have a whole conversation yeah. <laughs> about that. Yeah,
3: so I feel like we could have another another ten podcasts about that.
2: Yeah,
3: yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we, we built a diversity workshop. It was a great starting point. Our bar was like, let's have people come out of this knowing what is diversity. Like that was how low the bar was. Like you could you could just roll yourself over that bar. It was so low. Um, but it was, it was, it was where to start. Like, you know, yes, we have differences. Yes, we look different, but we have all these things that are shared or all these things that you, you shouldn't expect, you know, just when you look at me, um, that was really great. And, um, then I, I, uh, I resuscitated and took over the women in life sciences group with a couple of their graduate students. And, um uh, and that was meant to be like a, you know, how can we support women in science? Because um, much like in, in other um, STEM fields, um, you can have like 50-50 parity between men and women in uh, graduate programs. But once you look at tenure track uh, you know, professor positions, it's dismal. And if you're any sort of intersection, like a person with a disability and a woman or like a person of color and a woman or just anything else, um, there it's you know there's 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 no statistics essentially like there's so few of us and so i i did this women in life sciences and as through running it i heard just terrible things from people that were sharing what was happening in their labs um you know i'd hear professors being like oh that stuff was you know sexism is a thing of the 70s like that's not a thing anymore like it comes such a long way. It's not a problem. It's like no, it, it still is. And I had done a lot of things, you know, from from college um, through graduate school that were about retention and like building resources um, for people that were coming into into graduate programs into schools. It was frustrating because there were still no broad sweeping changes in our institutions that would really you know, attack the inequities. Really address um, why diversity is lacking in STEM. It would really, you know, really start to to tackle the the, the real, you know, ingrained systemic problems. And I went to this talk where um, one of the most respected professors at UCSF she gave a talk, and she's she's brilliant. She's um her name is, is Dr. Carol Gross. She's just, she's fabulous, and she's done so much work to help women and minorities in science, it's amazing. Um, But she presented some data on the status of, of women in science and in this big, big talk at UC Berkeley. And I asked the question, I was like, okay, so it still seems like we have really big problems, we need to make sweeping changes, right? So how would you go about doing that? I was ready for like, here's my 10 step plan. And her answer was like, it is so hard. She's like, I don't feel I have the clout to do this. She is so well established. Like the reason I learned about UCSF was because I was in Japan and a professor in Japan was like, this is the foremost person in microbiology. Go find her. She's amazing. Like that, she's she's world recognized. She's respected. She's well loved. She's she's a she's a team player. She's one of those few, sorry academics. She's one of those few academics that actually actually wants to play as a team and and does a, a fantastic job doing science with that. Um, and so she here she was um, telling me that she didn't feel she had enough clout and that it's better to make small changes. And I was gutted. I was like, no. Way Like we need something different like this. If I stay in academia, this is, I would never see change until like 15 years, 30 years later, I would still, I would probably be in the same boat she is saying I don't have enough clout. So I needed something different at the same time, uh, you know, like a week later or something. I went to uh, a conference on solutions to bias, and um, and Kat Adams was there. She's UVP's uh, co-founder. She really like nucleated this idea of like let's use the science that's out there. Sociologists have studied this discrimination for years, decades even, and they've they thought about this. But we need to translate those, you know, academic solutions into something that anybody can use, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's unconscious or overt bias, like the tools are really the same of like what you need to do about it. Together, we were just like, you know, we, we're we tired of of the complaints. We're tired of doing this, like, um, you know, just putting a Band-Aid over the problem when like it's really a hemorrhage, right? <laughs> we're we're this, is, this is a huge problem. It's, it's really broad. It's really big. And we have to, we have to give people actionable, like, like easy to apply tools and techniques and words that they can describe the problems, you know, like, I didn't even know how to describe unconscious bias until I started talking with with Kat. And at this time, we were, we were a student org um, at Berkeley and, and, uh, and yeah, and, and I realized like, oh. So that moment when my professor was like, you know, I don't think your science is good enough to take to a conference. Like that's actually his unconscious bias speaking because if you you talk to that professor and he's like, "Oh, I'm he he he's on every board on every like pro diversity, pro inclusion thing." Every anywhere, like he, you know, that is his his motto, his thing. But if you looked at his track record, only men were being invited to go to conferences. I didn't realize that because I was like, oh yeah, my science is terrible, right? Like that's what we're taught as academics to do is like, oh, self doubt, it's baked in, and uh, and you know, and I didn't know that that was that that was how to define that, like the the awkward feeling when you know some somebody like repeats the idea that you just had and they get the credit for it. Uh, you know that's all coming from bias and unconscious bias and sort of these ingrained things. Um, but yeah, so uh, so with with Cat, we're like, okay, we want to we want to disrupt this. We want to make this different. We don't want it to be a dry, you know, boring workshop. We don't want it to be a, a guilt fest, right? Because that's the other way people talk about this. We want this to to make people feel like they can do something about it, like not sit there in the vast, like, Oh my God, this is a huge problem. And I will never be able to do a single thing about this and ch- change that and be like, Hey, you know, I, yes, I can have guilt. I can process, like, I, you know, I, I might've hurt somebody in the past and I can do something right. I can change what I do and, and it can be just a tiny different step. Like, you know, uh, listening to a podcast on linguistic discrimination, watching a TV show that isn't an entirely white cis het able bodied cast, uh, you know, th- there's just there's just tiny differences, tiny differences in your actions that you can make will, will make a. It's like a it's a butterfly effect. It's a huge ripple effect, um, and and that's really powerful. And that's that's why Kat and I have, have stuck together through thick and thin of our group, we started the nonprofit to, um, as people, once we developed a workshop, people were like, throw it, like, can I throw you some money? We're like, wait, we, we're not ready for that. So we started the nonprofit. We're like, okay, well, let's make this intentional. Let's, you know, let's, um, let's build these things. Let's get the stuff out there and let's, uh, you know, let's get professionals like Lucrecia, you know, on board to, you know, that have, have this you know additional brilliant expertise in how to talk to CEOs in like Palo Alto, right? Like we we don't have that, but you know folks like Lucrecia do
4: it's a mixture professional, personal, and the more I work, of course the more I learn about myself and about the in-group community. And I get in and out myself, so it is it is all uh, a process um, very subtle process for me and for my clients um, so the first thing and this is a little bit hard for me to to be talking as a professional and talking as a human being uh, at this very moment because I was searching for my for my clients, the other piece, right? I work with decoding, changing behaviors, deconstructing, trying for the people to find their own self-conscious and self, self-awareness self and self-knowledge. So we work and executive coaches, we work a little bit with neuroscience. I am particularly working a lot with neuroscience. I study with the best PhD about it. So, um i was i was able to change behaviors but i was not really having a lot of answers and and this is where my personal story gets in because as being a foreigner i always need to be with the best to prove myself so instead of stopping there like well i don't really care what is the science and what is the data about this particular um, situation or behavior or thought. Um, I start talking about it with the diversity, equity, and inclusion people. Um, and believe it or not, they, they didn't give me a lot of answers. So one of my mentors said, well, you need to really talk to these doctors in in, in Berkeley. They have the other half of what you're looking for. So immediately I I call them and say, I want to learn from you. And I think I have the practicum of what you're teaching in the long term. So you facilitate and I take hands to the people for a few more months. So I really make sure that the change is happening. And I'm really sure that they really understand in practice what you teach and what you facilitate. So I fall in love with them. And, of course, again, personally and professionally, it was like a bomb.
2: You say it was like a bomb? Can you uh, explain a little?
4: This is part of the personal thing, right? I'm from Spain. I'm from Madrid. I was part of the elite. Nobody was thinking about, is she intelligent enough? Is she good enough? Nobody really questioned my money or my position or my privilege. When I came here, I was really comfortable because people are doing different things at the same time. And it's, it's, it's appropriate and it's cool. And, and, you know, you, you know what you do with your time and your talent. So it was kind of the perfect fit, but I started realizing, but you are a minority here. You don't, you don't really realize that. Um, I am not considered myself Latina in anyone in Europe. Right. But at the same time here, I'm part of Latino group. So I was having that debate in my own body and in my own brain. Um, and I don't look like the Latino than you think. I don't. I look more European, the European than you think. And and my Spanish is way different, right, than the other Spanish. So I was like, why should I be in this group? And I don't even feel part of this group. So the bomb was when I I realized, wow, Lynette is also feeling that because. She's also part of the world, not really part of this group of the Unconscious Bias Project in Berkeley of the doctors and PhD. So my whole body was very relaxed and my whole body understood at that time when I talked to Kat at the the same time that Lynette, those are my people. Uh, They have intellect, they have hearts, and they feel that they are part of everywhere and nowhere. So that's kind of the description of the bomb.
1: Perhaps because of confidentiality, you can't tell us who you work with, but can you tell us a little bit about projects that um, the Unconscious Bias Project has been doing?
3: The Unconscious Bias Project, our main uh, offering are our workshops, and so we have a, like really, you know, compacted hour and a half, um, interactive, empowering workshops where we give you everything from a one hundred and one on like what is bias? What is unconscious bias? How do I know if I have it? Um, You know, what can I start doing about my personal bias? What can I do to intervene in moments of bias? And then like, depending on who our client is, we'll put in a piece about power dynamics, which is very important um, aspect of all this, or something about policy, for example, Or if you're a teacher, you know, how does this show up in in classrooms? That's one thing that we've done. Another project that um, we've been recently working with the student org and with UC Berkeley campus is to create like an awareness campaign about unconscious bias and what you can do about it using art. So we've created, we've worked with um, local artists to create a gamified version of what it's like to have go through life with intersectional biases. We called it the dastardly dark way where you have to like, you know, contort your body through, you know, a, a dark hallway. Well, we had the same thing except with yarn, which is cute. And you have a buzzer at the end, but we give you all these props that are meant to represent like the barriers um, people face, you know, going through life with, you know, whatever identity other people place on them or identity that they, they have. We, we were able to, to run this before, before pandemic. And it's it was really great, you know, getting people, you know, saying like, well, I, I tripped over a bunch of yarn, but it wasn't my fault, is because I had these, you know, this huge ball as part of my character that, you know, randomly got assigned. It's like, well, yeah, you're, you know, uh, your character was somebody with obesity um, due to a metabolic disorder, like they, it wasn't their choice, right, to have to carry the the stereotype. Of, you know, being stereotyped for being fat, but they still had to deal with that through their life. So this this is that representation. Like we're literally talking about what bias means, right? Even if it's if it's a game, even you know, people are actually you know having these conversations. People love our workshops. We've, we're very very fortunate to um, have people really receive them well. But they are always optional workshops. You know, if you force somebody to do uh, training, whether it's sexual harassment or diversity or whatever. Um, it's more likely than not going to backfire. Like there's actually a Harvard Business Review study examining why do diversity programs fail? And this was this is one of the main ones. Um, so how do we get the people that like really should be thinking about this stuff to learn about this stuff? And this is where the awareness campaign came in. So we made the desperately Dark Way. Um, we also have a an interactive art installation where we have our, our amazing cartoonist, Teresa Oborn, Um, Illustrate moments of bias that people have shared with us, and uh, people get to interact with the art piece and say, like, "Yeah, I've seen this before," or "This has happened to me," or "This is the first time I'm I'm seeing this, and I didn't know it was bias." We also um, developed what we call the Fun Shop, which is a spin on a traditional workshop where um, you're creating art essentially at the same time that you're learning um, evidence-based bias reduction tools. Um, we actually tried it out at the California Welfare Directors Association that we were talking about earlier, and it went super well. And so you're using social, emotional, and physical learning of creating, you know, a drawing or um, creating a bead bracelet or a keychain. Um, but then you're also thinking about, you know, okay, this is this is what is unconscious bias here's how I'm applying a tool. Like, uh, for example, individuating instead of stereotyping is one of the tools. And um, we, we have people uh, pair up with with total strangers and we give them a series of questions they can ask each other. Um, you know, anything from like, hi, you know, my name is, this is where I'm from, to, uh, you know, spicier questions. Like, you know, this was the first time I was discriminated against or um, you know here is an identity of mine that you would not necessarily know just by looking at me and it was really powerful like people came up to us and, and they're like you know this person that I thought I would have nothing in common with we literally have the same life like we have the same job you know in totally different counties um we have you know this aged kids we read the same book like last week and we both like to knit and we both like this type of music it was like I, I would not have planned that better. That moment of connection is really powerful. Unfortunately with the pandemic, you know, we, we're we're put all of that on hold because we're you know, all of our stuff has been in person. Um, what we're actually embarking on right now, it's something that we just sort of started coming up with in the last few days, is we wanna create a series of online either videos or podcasts we're still we're still figuring this out to address the racism and xenophobia that is just flaring up throughout the U.S. and really internationally um against uh Chinese people and people of Asian descendants, you know, so this is Asian Americans, Asians, Chinese, Filipinos. It doesn't matter what country <laughs> in Asia you might be from, like you're getting it. And it, it's, it's, it's awful. And it's terrible. I was like, Hey, we're, we are the unconscious bias project. We have this experience. We have these tools. We've been in these conversations. Why don't we just put this out there and give it to people? Um, it, ideally very bite-sized, you know, easy ways to, to digest. Cause you know, it's a pandemic is, isn't settling. It's affecting all of us and, and it's scary and it's hard. And it, it would be so hard to ask anybody to be like, okay, you are on Muni, you know, for whatever reason you're on, you're on public transit and you see somebody say something to, to someone who, who might be Chinese, like you don't even know. Right that's something that's racist. What do you say? Like, it's already hard enough to speak up about this stuff without the pandemic, but you have all the stress and stuff on you. Why don't we break it down and make it easy? You know, like, this is what we do in our workshops. Let's figure out how to do it online. So we're going to do, we're going to roll this out ideally um, in April and May. It's becoming more and more apparent that some of these um, really deep inequities that we have in our our healthcare systems and you know our 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 welfare systems, all of these um, sort of infrastructures that are being impacted by the pandemic, I feel like the time is now, and um, we are a nonprofit, so we are going to have a a fundraiser associated with it. We don't we don't we've never really done a ton of online content, so this will be new for us. And you know any 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 amount is 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 a really helpful amount. You know, it's a really it's a critical time right now. We cannot be permitting uh, bias and discrimination to fester and continue the way it is uh, because we need to come together. We need to, you know, you know, yeah, yes, we have to be apart, right, six feet apart. We need to unite. We need to, you know, now is a time that 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 we should be that we should be saying something that we should be listening to uh you know people with disabilities is now is the time you know if you if you weren't before like now is the time to to listen and and learn and do something and intervene like we we have the power we can do it all it takes is just just you know one little step one little phrase one little hey hold on that that's uncalled for or you know hey that's not right
2: I not think that's an excellent place to end
1: on. That's like such a good
3: message. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Almost
1: as if you're saying to not be an asshole.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Please just don't be an asshole. Just, just yeah. yes. <laughs> you, you only need one. You don't need to be two. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: wow. my God. I love that. <laughs> wow. The Vocal Fries Podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com.
0: This is Alexis again, just saying thank you again to Vocal Fries for having Lynette and Lucrecia on because it's always an honor to be a guest on another podcast and also to just share these amazing podcasts from these other folks, these other women. All right. Have a good one.